Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And yet, he hasn't, hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Every superhero story has an origin story, doesn't it? And Luke, when he's writing Acts, is traveling with Paul. And we have to remember that when he's traveling with Paul, he is, he is very conscious of the fact that he's writing a story not just of the early church, but he's going to write the story that is his mentor, his leader, his guide, his missionary guide, origin story. And so it takes a while in Acts to get there. We haven't gotten to Saul, really, on the forefront. He's been kind of in the background until we hit about chapter 8 and 9. And it's here in chapter 9 that Saul's conversion happens. And then as we continue the story, we begin to get the epic scale of transformation that Saul goes through. Now, Saul is like, Saul who becomes Paul is considered one of the influ most influential men like to ever live. He's written 25% of the New Testament of the Bible, one of the most influential books to exist, probably the most influential book. And if you think about his influence on Luke and Luke's writings of Luke and Acts, Paul has influence over 50% of the New Testament. I mean, surely Luke, the doctor and journalist and reporter and gatherer, would have been heavily influenced by traveling with Paul. And so Saul's origin story, Paul's origin story, really matters. What happens in the story really matters. And I think it helps us appreciate the transformational story of Jesus on every life. Now, let me give you an example. I don't know if any of you guys are into the Olympics like I am. I'm just nostalgically into the Olympics. They are on in our house. We turn them on, we watch them, I grew up with them. The Olympics does a thing that we all like to make fun of, right? They do these sob stories. So they do this thing where you have no idea who anybody is because every, let's face it, every four years, it's like a whole new cast of characters. I'm completely like, I don't know this one from this one. Germany, yay, Norway, I don't care. I don't know any of the names of any of these athletes. So what they do is they show you these background stories. They give you a one minute origin story and they try and pack it in there so that there's significance and so that you're actually invested in the, in the race that you're watching. Luke is realizing, okay, Paul is massively influential on in the church, right? Let's make sure the church understands his origin story. Because if we get the origin story of Paul, then we load all of that, we invest ourselves and we load all of that into all of his writings. Of course, he, he talks about all of this in his writings so we can connect his epistles to his churches to these stories. But when we get this transformational origin, I think we go from like, 
Ah, Paul, he's just like perfect, right? He sounds so perfect. Do you read Romans? Like this, Romans, this guy's like a superhero Christian. He's completely perfect. I could never be like him. And then you read Acts and you go, oh, whoa, this guy has a past. This guy has something going on. Now I'm invested. What is it that happened? How could the power of Jesus change somebody so deeply? So, in, in the, that's going to that's travel with us throughout the story of Acts. In this passage, we're looking at a theme. We're saying, okay, within that transformational story of Saul, what is the theme of this passage? Every time I take a chunk of the Bible, and usually you can do it by the headings. Sometimes you have to go a little broader. I ask myself, why does this start here? And why does this end here? Why did this author write an intro, a middle, and an end? And what does the end tell me about what I should be looking at from the beginning and vice versa, right? So if we go to the end of this passage, when Ellen read it, she read, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. This is a story about multiplication. This is a story about church growth. So I wanna ask us this question because it's very pertinent to us as we're entering 2022 and we're going, okay, we have a mask mandate lifting March 31st. We're going to be entering yet a new iteration of the pandemic, whatever it may look like. And we are a church who is seeking to grow because that's what healthy churches do. They seek to grow. So what gets in the way of growth? Well, we could ask this question, what can't stop this church from growing? If we listen to that scripture, just a few, few people. What can't stop this church from growing? What happens here that doesn't stop it from multiplying? Think about what happens in the story. Saul is lowered in a basket. He escapes a city. He's under threat. What, what's one thing that can't stop this church from growing? Fear. Fear cannot stop this church from growing. Persecution. What about the middle section? Paul, Saul goes and he meets with the disciples in Jerusalem. What do they do? They say, isn't this the guy who is killing everybody? They're doubting. Right? Doubt can't get in the way of church growth. Death threats don't get in the way of church growth. Okay, but, but here's the funny thing. A lot of times we take that and we hear these stories and we go, okay, so I'm gonna flip those into opposites. Those are keys to church growth. We actually like write our news articles in the Christian magazines this way. We go, persecution in China and the church is exploding, right? So what do we need? What do we need as citizens to grow? Oh, we just need some persecution, some death threats, you know, we need doubt. We need like, what? No, that's not how it works. Obviously, nobody wants to be persecuted. Where nobody here is like raising their hand and asking to be persecuted. So what does make the church grow? And what gets in the way? We can see what makes the church grow. Paul preaching in Damascus with boldness and courage and strength. We can see that this church grows because people are gathering around Saul, smuggling him out in a basket. We've been talking about that phrase, innocent and doves as shrewd as serpents. This is the classic case of Christians being innocent as doves and yet, yet shrewd as serpents. They're going, there's a, there's a leader in this city, the governor or whatever, he has it out for Saul. We gotta get this guy out, right? And we're just gonna figure out a way to slip him out in the dark. It's teamwork. Teamwork is helping the church grow. There's a group identity. There's self-sacrifice. There is a sense of what we call in the military or sports often, brotherhood or sisterhood. Right? My brother was a SEAL, and there's a, just a strong brotherhood. It's, it's actually less about the mission and about the patriotism and more about the brotherhood. Right? We are together to the end. 
We also see with Barnabas, he's advocating for Saul and the disciples. And we see that he has compassion and optimism. But what are all of these things tied to at the root? What are all of these things tied to that we saw in Saul's origin story? They're they're tied to transformation. They're tied to a hope in transformation. So the thing that must motivate church growth in this story, the thing that motivates all of these different actions, it motivates smuggling Saul out in a basket. It motivates Saul to preach in Damascus. It motivates Saul to go to the disciples in Jerusalem, back into Jerusalem, where he surely got a mark on himself, to the existing church of which he is the chief persecutor. And his hope and transformation motivates this action. Barnabas's hope in Saul's own transformation motivates him to defend him against the apostles. So that is the root quality. We get hung up on actions, either misconstruing them like persecution or construing them in a way where we're not really getting to the source and we're saying, oh, we just need to send out more flyers. We just need to do X, Y, Z thing. That's what we're missing. And it's not that those things are wrong, but we need to trace those to the root and realize that at the very root of church growth is an individual and communal hope in transformation. So I kind of, I wrote this up just thinking about what happens in the story. The church multiplies when the transforming Christ is claimed, lived, and shared by his people. Jesus is savior, Jesus is transformer. He transforms the very core of us. We first claim it, we do that in baptism, we do that in saying I believe, but then we live it, right? And that's a lifelong process, and then we share it. This is nothing new for you guys, but perhaps spelling it out a little bit helps us realize how how it's all tied to this root of transformation. So in this story, what that means then is that people's pasts do not need to get in the way of church growth. They say, isn't this the man who was wreaking havoc? That happens both by people outside the church and people inside the church. They're getting hung up on his past. This means that targets from the enemy whether that's the devil, whether that's what Paul calls Paul's powers and principalities, whether that's the cultural forces against the church. So we think of the city of Portland. We think of what's happening in public schools. We think of what's happening with our neighbors. We think about our kids' parents and what they're up to and what they're going to learn at their friends' houses. We think about our friends at work. Those are all cultural forces, right? Those do not need to get in the way of church growth is what this says. Okay. Conspiracies and takedowns from the enemy. Life going against you does not forbid church growth. So for instance, we're aiming to sell our house and live somewhere else in the city. We talk to our realtor. He goes, you have no problem selling, but you have 60 days after you sell to find a house. And I go, what, 60 days? And we just have to like pick one? And there's not even that much volume? And he goes, just pray really hard. <laughs> and I go, that sounds like life is against me. That, that makes me afraid, right? That makes me nervous. That makes me want to retreat. But those things are not obstacles to growth, either individually as a church. Even doubt from within the church about new believers do not need to get in the way of church growth. So let me give you an example. You might say, I'll never do what these disciples did to Saul. But what about the person you run into and you go, sheer, he'll never change. They've been at this church and never gonna change. I've seen it, I know it, I'm wasting my time, right? Or my husband or my wife or my kids or whatever, they're never, my, my friend who's kind of interested in Jesus, but... They just, they're always just kind of interested in Jesus. They're never going to change. These kinds of things are enemies of church growth. These kinds of ways of thinking are enemies of church growth because what do they do? They discourage us. We just get super discouraged. We just get really down. We start to, so, so saith John, right? Is a phrase we've heard a lot. You so say you. 
that that's going to happen. But we are not future tellers, and we don't have crystal balls. So if I had to, I just laid down some of the things from this passage and some of the things that I've noticed in my own life that connect with those that are obstacles to growth, either in myself or in my sharing of the gospel. Number one, just right at the top, failure of nerve. You get excited on Sunday or on Tuesday. You go, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get out there. I can't do it. Just total failure of nerve. Just, Just can't build it up. Just can't get out there and do it. Fear, arrogance, skepticism is a big one. You're really sure when you're around other Christians, you feel it when you're in the moment, and then you start to worry about it. You start to wonder, you start to ask, ah, did I just drink the Kool-Aid of someone else's idea? And you start to get skeptical. Competition, this is where you go, oh, I see X church over there or X friend over there with X house and X life, and I just wanna compete, I just wanna be better. That's not a good motivation actually to growth because it comes from a place of scarcity and it comes from a place of want instead of assurance. Bitterness, grumbling, cowardice, passivity, doubt, lack of discipline. These are all things that can get in the way of growth. So what I wanted wanted to do is show you an example from pop psychology that I think is very connected to this story and I think helps us understand how Saul is so incredible as a role model for us. Okay, this is what's called a fixed mindset. Probably some of you have seen this. This is like a a rubric that's used in education or in therapy. Fixed mindset, it says, is limiting, avoids challenges, gives up easily, is threatened by other people's success, desires to look smart, thinks that effort is fruitless, ignores feedback, fixed dislikes, okay? That's what's called a fixed mindset. If you have a fixed mindset and you were Saul, how on earth would you go on to become Paul? If you're a fixed mindset like the disciples that are doubting Saul and his transformation, how are you gonna get to what's called a growth mindset? So it's going from a place that is totally limiting to someplace that is totally freeing. So if we remember what we learned about the the write-up I did about the transformational power of Christ and how that's here, I'll put it up on the screen, is claimed, lived, and shared by his people. How does that impact our mindsets? With everything like with our own habits, with our own lives, with each other, with the way we see each other. I'm convinced that I have been often stuck in a fixed mindset about many, many things. I have decided the way out. I have decided the limits and the boundaries. And then I've often acted letting my past define my future and saying, nope, this is who I am. This is what I have been. Therefore, this is what I must be. But Saul absolutely could not have thrived. He would have been dead on arrival. He would have been just a limp noodle his whole ministry if he couldn't get past who he had been and put on a growth mindset to see who he needs to become. Because at the moments when we're most fixed, I would say we tend to lack faith. We tend to lack faith. But a growth mindset, I've just been moved by experiencing people in my life who have a growth mindset. They tend to be positive. They tend to, whether they feel it or not inside, project courage, which means I think that they're choosing to believe in the promise of Jesus, whether or not their emotions fit it, which in a way is teaching themselves to believe it. If I say, okay, I am going to cling to the promise that Jesus will transform not only me, but my life and my church, I now can come in as a force of that growth. So this kind of person is free to persevere in the face of failures. 
They take the effort required to build new skills because their calling as a Christian, their calling in their church is going to require them to become people they've never been before and do things they've never been. And we're doing this. We're doing this in our church. They find inspiration in other people's success instead of feeling threatened by it. Man, that takes some self-talk because I know I tend to go to threat, right? So to go, wow, that's an option. That's a possibility. I'm proud of you and thankful for you. And I realize you have a completely separate life than me and my life will never be your life. Therefore, I'm inspired by your success. They embrace challenges, accept criticism, desire to learn, build abilities. These are, as I said, these are popular psychology ideas. These are not necessarily biblical, but I think they help us put skin and skin on the bones. They are kind of like the tip of the iceberg. You guys have, of course, heard this analogy many, many times. When we see other people, other Christians that really present this growth mindset, do we ever ask ourselves, what's underneath? Like, why do I struggle so much with that? What, what is underneath? What is at the root that I could work on? But instead what we do is often we try to mimic and we don't realize what's under the iceberg. What's under the iceberg of that person. And that a huge amount of growth simply has to do with attitude. Regardless of what we do, we're not helping change anybody if our attitude is not a spirit of redemption, but is still a spirit of condemnation, whether it's condemnation on ourselves or other people. And I really believe that the spirit entering into us, we all have the spirit within us. Everyone who has claimed Christ has the spirit within them. The question is how often are we listening to the spirit and letting it guide us as we live our lives? And the process of what we call sanctification is freeing ourselves to the voice of the Spirit as a trustworthy guide and bravely following it to transform us into what we've called new frontiers. So this is happening like writ large in Acts for the entire church. They are all having to deal with this expansive, redemptive mission of Jesus. I wrote here that the, in Acts, we have the infant church's expanding journey of witnessing Jesus as the savior for the world, which you might say, okay, like that's what churches do. These are people that understood Israel to be the chosen people of God for most of their lives. And now are realizing we have an expansive journey to do where we have to reach people we've judged, we've had biases against, we've written off, we did not need to get out there and proselytize. We did not need to get out there and share this good news because it was for us the chosen. And so it's unsettling and it makes people really upset. This is what gives Saul the murderous rage of a wild animal. So when they say he made havoc, this is like a super intense term and it means that he was just enraged that somebody would have the audacity to claim the name of God as a human being, that's straight up blasphemy. And that they would then try and go reach the nations with this alternate religion, it needs to be stopped. And this though, you would think, okay, well then with the Christians, what's the problem? But what we see in Acts is that even the Jewish Christians, as they welcome the Gentiles, run up against this and they go, oh no, but you need to get circumcised. Oh no, but you need to follow the kosher diet laws. Oh no, but you need to basically become a Jewish Christian. So when Saul is bringing his gospel to Peter, his gospel from the direct revelation of Jesus to Peter, they actually fight each other. And we're gonna see that in the coming chapters. And we hear about that in the letters. It's going to require both Paul and Peter, even as people with the indwelling spirit of Jesus, even with the direct revelation, whether walking by him in ministry or seeing him on the road to Damascus, it's going to take them having a growth mindset. 
to work together and to grow and to move forward. So how does this growth mindset work for Saul? Well, when we start the story, he's in Damascus, he's proclaiming, it looks like, you know, we talked about this 180 transformation. It looks like Saul just immediately goes from like direct revelation to Jesus to like on fire for Jesus. Everything's completely worked out. His identity doesn't seem to hit any road bumps. He makes this complete identity transformation without a hiccup. It's kind of what it seems like when you read the text. Proclaiming he is the son of God and all who heard were amazed. They said, isn't this the man who wreaked havoc? But Saul increased, but Saul increased, wait, but Saul increased all the more in strength. And then in verse 23, when many days had passed, well, there's a lot of conjecture around what this many days means. Paul, when he's called Paul, it's so confusing, Saul, Paul. When he's, when he's writing in Galatians 1, let me see if I have it written out here. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 24, he talks about what happens in this phase of his life. <clears throat> so he writes and he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, how I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people. So extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. I went into Arabia. Why doesn't Luke write that? When many days have passed, Luke says, but when Paul talks about this time period, he says he went into Arabia. In Arabia at that time was a civilization called the Nabataean Kingdom. We know the Nabataean Kingdom because of this. This is called Petra. If you've ever seen this in the National Geographic, this is a, a huge facade of a building carved into the wall of a cliff. The Nabataean people were successful trade people and they lived in what would have been in that time called Arabia. Now, I'd love to think that this is where Saul went. He went into this exotic like, Indiana Jones-esque world and, and meditated on Jesus. But unfortunately, that's probably not the case because right next door to him was also what's called Arabia. And it would have looked far more desolate and far less civilized. In fact, it probably wouldn't even have been a sunset shot. It probably just would have been that. Drab desert. As I read this, Putting myself in Saul's shoes, I imagine what kind of massive identity transformation he would have to go through. And it doesn't surprise me at all that Paul said, I'm going to proclaim Jesus. Of course I am. I'm going to name him as the Son of God. Of course I am. I saw him. And I'm going to realize the tremendous gravity this is going to put on me emotionally as an identity. I'm going to be coming against all these people in Damascus. I sought to kill, and I'm going to be proclaiming Jesus to them. They're going to be doubting me. I need to take a retreat, go into the desert, which is just such a biblical theme. We've got Moses doing it, right? Moses hits an identity crisis and heads out into Moab. We've got Jesus doing it when he begins his ministry. To deepen his identity in God, which I know is kind of a paradox, he's Jesus, right? But yet he goes out into the wilderness. So now here, Saul actually has a wilderness story that connects him in this biblical line. That in order to reconcile his identity, I believe Paul went out into Arabia to work out what it meant, the gospel of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. And I don't think Paul was like, I'm done with you, church. I'm out of here. Couldn't care less about you. I think in his best Terminator voice, Paul was like, I'll be back, right? I've got work to do. And he enters this innermost cave moment and he does it specifically for this reason, not to feel self-pity, not to flee or run from Jesus, but actually to spend time with Jesus 
I think, healing. Healing just takes time. The body has to catch up. And he went and he healed with Jesus. William Barclay writes that after a shattering change, Paul had to be alone for a time with God. I've been reading a lot about this kind of work um, in the masculine identity, masculine initiation. They call this ashes work. This is ashes work. And what it is, is you get in touch with the dark side and you say, it's there. I know the voices that are going to hit me. I know the doubting voices that are going to come at me. I know what culture is going to throw at me. I've heard it. I've experienced it. I'm going to become friends with it so it doesn't surprise me anymore. And I'm going to cling to the truth of Jesus until it provides the foundation and the assurance for my life. He also went out to find understanding because what Paul comes back with, what Saul comes back with, is guidance for a strange way, as one commentator said, or strength for an overwhelming test. He has a gospel that he knows will both be at odds with the culture around him and the Jewish Christian culture. Because what Paul comes with that's unique is he comes head on with somebody like Peter and he says, no, it's open. It's open. The new covenant isn't even what you thought it is. So in some way, Paul progresses the revelation of Jesus. Jesus had to come to Saul to actually move the whole church forward. And going to Peter is not like a small thing. Catholics believe Peter is the first pope. This is like heading to pope and going, you're wrong. And I've heard it directly from Jesus. And then to have other Christians advocate and defend and lift him up. That's the power of the Spirit. And I think what he found when he was out in the wilderness that is the crux of the book of Romans, which is to me his theological tour de force. The hinge of Romans in the middle is therefore there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And guys, if we as a church that seeks to grow and serve and lead can first practice that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus in our own lives, and then be able to communicate in our own words, in our own flavor, with our own giftings, what that actually means for other people and treat them that way, to treat them without condemnation. That would be beautiful. That would build the iceberg that we need to build, the invisible part of each of us, the invisible part of our church. That when people walk in, they're only seeing the tip and they're going, I like that. I like what I'm seeing. They don't realize that it's because we truly believe that there is no condemnation in Jesus. I was doing a, um, I have a tendency each week, most weeks, to do a fast for a day. And I've been kind of thinking, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, I don't know, what does it do? Like, hungry. I know Jesus is there. I know he's my strength. Yes, when I'm hungry, I pray. But I was starting to kind of lose some sense of traction around it. I was, I was losing some sense of how that could motivate me. And Megan introduced me to this idea for one of her classes called a fasting target. At the beginning of your fast or the beginning of your time, your day, whatever, however you set up a day where you really want to be with Jesus, whether that's your Sabbath, you could do this on a Sabbath easily, and say, I'm going to set a target it might be a Bible verse that I put on a sticky note. It might be a prayer I pray. Part of this target was this term, unbraiding ourselves from monuments of shame and regret. Wow, if I could spend my fast day every time in my mind that something that reminds me that I'm not worth it, something in my past that I wish I had done differently enters me and begins to punish me, that I would unbraid myself from that because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That I see that we would not just claim it, but we would actually begin to live that out. Because then what's going to happen is, A, we're going to be more present with other people. We're going to be more open to what God has for us because that's in the past. I'm not that anymore. I'm becoming a new person. So now I'm open. I'm open and I'm free and I'm asking, what does today have to offer me? How can I be positive about what God is sending me today instead of negative and saying either I'm not worthy or it's not worthy? How do we get to that place? It's going to require just daily work, practices, habits, and believing 
first and foremost, that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So Paul increases all the more in strength and conviction. I think it is a tendency for us to think about our faith as medical school instead of marriage. So in medical school, what do you need to do? You need to study, study, study so that you can pass the final boards, right? It's all, you're not a doctor if you don't pass the final boards. So you do all of the work and then at one point, deliverance will be declared to you. That is what we learn in culture just by and large. Marriage, as hopefully we practice it in our own marriages, right? A good marriage is actually reversed. I am now married. It's done. I have it. Therefore, I can now practice and grow into a better and better marriage every single day. So none of what I'm talking about, I've talked a lot about habits and, and ethics and disciplines and things we can do. Just, I always want to remind us, this is not medical school. You are not trying to get there. You're there and now you're working out effectiveness. I can be married and have a pretty miserable marriage or I can be married and wake up and want to see my wife or husband, right? I can have, and similarly with lots of other things, family, is also like a declarative. You are family, right? Now, some families have a deeper sense of promise with each other than others. But the point is you're there and you can build within it. The other thing in, Paul's, in Saul's ministry is that he seems to come out right away with resolve and confidence that he then won't be swayed by the road not taken. Okay, so if you unbraid yourself from monuments of shame and regret, now Saul is telling himself, I mean, how could Saul possibly be the kind of witness he is if he's going, man, I bet it would have been better if I'd stayed a Pharisee, right? I bet it would have been better if I'd stayed a persecutor. Then I wouldn't be persecuted right now. Like if they're like, we could get you out in a basket. And he's like, I could just defect back because this isn't really working out, right? Like how, what a different story of the church we have. But, but Paul is not swayed. Saul is not swayed. So when your mind says something like, I married the wrong person. I'm in the wrong church. I chose the wrong career. I made a wrong turn. Those are voices of condemnation. When it says, I'm not a good dad, I'm not a good friend, somewhere along the line I've made a mistake, that is a voice of condemnation and get out of here. Just get it out. And say, I believe that Jesus is my savior and there is no condemnation, therefore it's time to move forward growth mindset. Belinda Letchford writes for families, and she said, building a growth mindset is about aligning self-talk with what God says. I love that. It's just very simple and clear. So as you're practicing your faith, and as we're practicing reaching and growing in our own lives and outward, the whole time, whether you're sharing with friends or whether you're just going about your work day, we can be working on aligning self-talk, the voice in our head, with what God says about us. And at the beginning, you're not going to believe it. I just guarantee you, you're going to be like, John says to do it, it's not working, because I just totally don't believe it. Because you've spent years with self-talk of condemnation. So then, this is not all about us, right? So how do we bring the church... How does the church, as a witness, bring the world into God's loving presence forever? The church is changed people changing people. Okay, that's the first thing. We are all changed people changing people. That's discipleship. By the grace of Jesus. It's not on us. We do the work. We don't deliver the results. The harvest is given by God. 
but we continue to plant, we continue to sow, we continue to do whatever needs to be done in front of us at that time, at that stage of our church, of our relationship, of our friendship with our neighbor. We're moving in four weeks. Do I stop connecting with my neighbors? I'm certainly tempted to, but I felt God saying, nah, invite them over for dinner, right? You have no idea what part of the relationship you're in. You have no idea what seed you're planting. So by the grace of Jesus, it's not up to me, into the image of Jesus. We're not just changing for our own, like, I have good habits in here, you should have my habits, right? I'm a successful business person here, you could be a, that's not what this is. This is change people, changing people into the image of Jesus. But what gets in the way of that growth? A bad attitude, a fixed mindset that is built from fear of condemnation. Okay, so we get that. The church is the growth engine for Christianity that Christ has put on the earth. We are Jesus' hands and feet. We know that. We've heard that. His spirit in us means that God is moving through the church now. And perhaps, I don't know, not as much through the divine intervention we see in the Old Testament. Right? Once he appoints the church, what we see is the church doing the things that formerly sometimes Jesus was intervening, God was intervening to do miraculously. Now, I'm not saying miracles don't happen. I'm just saying that we are the miracles now. Does that make sense? We are the chosen people as Israel was, as broken and mixed up as we are. And he is appearing through us to other people. Think about the miracles you've had in your life. How many of them have involved another Christian? I mean, they involve us. Now, let's think about this from the text. There's something really wild in this text. This basket is just weird. They, they lower him out of a window and like, was that a thing back then? And I thought about it and I go, most things in the Bible, especially with Luke, man, Luke is always looking to the Old Testament. Most things in the Bible are recalling where they can and patterning and rippling out an idea. Well, the thing that I go to with the basket is Moses in the Nile, right? I mean, you just think of it, here he is lowered out the window, delivered, delivered from the forces of evil in a basket, just like Moses was delivered from death declaration on his life by Pharaoh. Here we have, doesn't say it in this text, but it says it elsewhere in Paul's letters, it was a governor. It wasn't just a mob in Damascus. Like the civil authorities were like, kill Saul, right? It's a one-to-one -one matchup with Pharaoh and the Nile. But God's deliverance in the Nile, right? We know is by using people as his miraculous force. And so we see that happening in this New Testament with the church. But let's wait, let's stop and let's do one more blip backward, okay? So we can go back there and we can say, okay, he's still using people, they're not the church, it was Pharaoh's daughter, but he's still using people, okay, I get it. Um, but that's even a stand-in for something else because the basket in the Nile recalls and has the same word usage as the ark from the flood, okay, a boat. That is God's direct deliverance, right? God's direct hand is in the, in the ancient story of Noah. He's, he is like holding Noah through the flood. And then he's going, I'm gonna still hold, but I'm gonna do it with Pharaoh's daughter here. And then here in the New Testament, I'm gonna still hold, but I'm gonna bring the church to lower the basket. I don't know, to me it was beautiful. Like I saw how God's divine hand is in the work of his faithful people. And then it calls us to something that's much, I don't know, more rich, deeper. It has, it has a sense of purpose. This is not just happenstance. We are here. We are in our houses. We are in our communities. We have our jobs because God's divine hand is at work through us to reach and deliver because he is a transforming God. So if we see that our, bio, that our biographies, like Saul's biography, have an origin story 
And our origin story, the one we might need to sit down and work out and journal, is when I met Jesus, when I really got to know him, how did that transform me, right? What is, what is my origin story? When did I feel his transforming touch? Maybe there's multiple points for a lot of us. And perhaps I don't view my biography so much as I was born, I was raised here, I went to this school, I'm supposed to do this, and then we tend to go fantasy versus reality, right? And start to be down on ourselves in some way. Didn't go how I planned, how did I get here, blah, 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 blah. Instead, if we go, no, this is my actual biography, but it's also an origin story, and it's a testimony, therefore, it's a testimony of what Jesus has done in me. It's a personal experience with Jesus that we all have to have. And I codify that into a testimony. What if that was my bio? What if going through all of that and all the work I had done was actually a redeeming story? What if all of my life's ashes work? We all have ashes work. What if I've gone through death? What if I've gone through um, divorce? What if I've gone through a loss of job? What if I've gone through um, just the utter turmoil at home? And I've gone through it. And I've gone to the desert and I've done it with Jesus. Isn't that story beautiful and doesn't need to be told? I mean, Jesus' passion story to the cross is really the ultimate ashes work a friend and I were talking about. Like that story of carrying the cross to his death for the glory of Jesus and the redemption of all people for all time is the ultimate ashes work. And that story has been proclaimed from the mountaintops for its beauty. And we're embarrassed of our ashes. We hide them. We don't want people to know, but if we do the work and we become friends with them, now we can write our bios and re-articulate our story as a testimony of the work of God. Megan was working on a bio for Portland Rescue Mission. They had them do this and they had them come up with like these headlines, these just like a few words for who they were. And I thought it was great because it was, it was not what have I done only. Sure, what, you, what you've done is in there, but it's who am I, right? What is it that I would describe myself in a few sentences? Well, Paul actually gives his bio, right? And he does it, he says, this is, I think, Galatians 1, 23 through 24. This is the bio he gives. They only were hearing it said. He's talking about the people he's met. So they've only gotten his bio, right? The bio was sent ahead in the email. They saw that this guy's coming to town and doing a talk, right? Here's the bio that they got. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's Paul's headline. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's like the transformational power of Jesus, and that's his bio. So if we can hold on to that redemptive vision in the church and own how much God has changed us and carry that forward, here's the kind of things we might do. We might be like Stephen. One writer said the church owed Paul to the prayers of Stephen. We've talked about that. We might be like Ananias. The church owed Paul to the forgiveness of Ananias. Remember, he comes to him and he's blind. And Ananias comes to Paul, the killer, because he is a forgiving Christian. The church owed Paul to the charity of Barnabas in this story. So we need to practice seeing somebody who is not the right stuff maiden to the right stuff. And that's going to require putting ourselves out there. It's Super Bowl today. You only get as many points as you take shots. That's something we got to remember. This friend of mine goes, you got to grow a church. You got to go fishing. Like, you got to cast. You got to put stuff out there. You're not going to catch everything. And I think sometimes we get demoralized. And we say, well, God's spirit must have left or something. But you're not going to get points if you don't take shots. And if we think and we've written off our neighbors, our friends who we've reached out to, our communities, and we've said they're just not the right stuff. They can't be made right through Christ because X factors that I've seen, right? It's one thing to say that is an actual real difficulty and be strategic and be shrewd of service. It's another thing to say, I don't even think I can try. 
Those are very different things, right? We've all seen Sister Act, right? Sister Act 2, Lauren Hill, Whoopi Goldberg. She saw something and she went after it. Whoopi Goldberg had a growth mindset. So instead of saying, it's so unlikely, she's so rebellious in class, she saw she's got an amazing voice and it could be a gift for the choir. And I am not going to succumb to her criticism, her barbs, her hatred. Instead, I'm going to rise above those. And I'm going to keep encouraging, pouring out to her, loving her, showing something she's not giving back to me over and over and over and over again until it sticks. She's strategic. She's steadfast. And actually... She's totally free. She's not in charge of whether her student is going to actually come and join. She's just in charge of her own behavior. And I just, I guess, I just want to say this, that we have to remember when we get tired, when we get down, not that you can't rest. No, not that you can't rest because it's easy to hear, oh, John just like, never going to give me a break, right? Not that you can't rest, but you can't be defeated. You can rest, you can take breaks, you can take time, you can go to the desert, you can take a retreat so that you won't be defeated. That your growth mindset will not be defeated because this is what Jesus has done for us on his death on the cross. He forgave our sins, though we did not deserve it, and he leads us to life. Let's pray. God, um, thank you for this community. I know that we are all hands on deck, and I know that there are so many people represented that aren't even in this room that are behind this church and our mission. I pray, God, that you would give us clarity on what that mission is for those of us who might be struggling, that you might invigorate us with excitement and celebration and fun for your mission for us here in Portland. And God, I pray that you would give us rest, peace, and the spirit of encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen.